0: I was just doing little high school rallies while I was teaching and a couple of them, maybe maybe one or two or five a year. And then I started doing the Oakland seals. I went up for one game with the soccer team from books or high where I taught, they asked me to go with them. I did. I brought my drum. I was just going to sit with them and get them cheering during the game. I started off in my, uh,
1: cheerleading
0: personality kicked in. I got one section cheering. I got them going so good, I went to the next section. Pretty soon, I was all over the Oakland Coliseum. I destroyed the place that night. Oakland uh, SEAL fans had never seen anything like it in their life. The players never saw anything like it in their life. And so at the end of that game, when I went back the next day to teach, uh, the teacher that brought me Uh, Mr. Rouse, he handed me the newspaper, and one of the Oakland Seals players wanted me to come back to another game, and he said he would give me two of his tickets if I'd show up, and so I went back to another Seals game, and that's the way I got on with the Seals, and I did them for four years.
1: Welcome to Good Seats Still Available, a curious little podcast devoted to exploring what used to be in professional sports. Here's your host, Tim Hanlon. Hey everybody, this is Tim Hanlon, and this is Good Seat still available. Thank you for joining me on our curious little podcast journey into what used to be in professional sports. Fun episode today, make no mistake about it. If you've uh, ever been in the stands and, and heard a wacky guy yelling, screaming at the top of his lungs and banging a drum, imploring you to cheer and, Keep keep going and keep the team active and, and spirited. You probably know who my guest is today, and his name is Crazy George Henderson. He is arguably the world's first and only professional cheerleader, uh, and uh, he has been doing what he's been doing for, geez, well over 40 years now, and uh, is a legend in the Bay Area. Uh, San Jose Earthquake fans will certainly know him, Oakland A's fans, uh, even old Oakland slash California Golden Seals fans, et cetera. Uh, and he has been in ballparks all across this country. Minor league, major league, uh, professional teams that don't exist anymore. He's been there, done that, and is just as spry and enthusiastic as ever. And uh wonderful and fun conversation uh, in a couple of seconds with George Henderson here on the podcast. Uh, before we get to our uh, crazy George conversation, something that is not crazy is our website. Uh, you could argue maybe it is crazy just for all the stuff we've got going on, but go to goodseatsstillavailable.com. And it's there where you will find all things you need to know about us, what we're doing, how to follow us on various forms of social media, you know, the place where you can send us some email or send us some queries about uh, teams or questions or maybe suggestions for shows, all that kind of good stuff. It's goodseatsstillavailable.com. And again, that's where you'll find all of our, our fun stuff. Uh, to go further with us. And, and we do thank you for all of your commentary and your social tweets and, and uh, emails and all that kind of good stuff. Please keep it coming. And uh, we we love uh, when we hear from our, our listeners. Okay. So uh, we waste no more time then in uh, segueing to our very fun and very uh, spirited conversation with the one, the only, Crazy George Henderson here on the podcast. We welcome to our microphones the one, the only, Crazy George Henderson. Thank you very much for being with us.
0: I love it. You said my name. Let's have the interview.
1: <laughs> well, why wouldn't we, George? I mean, honestly, um, as a, you know, as a professional cheerleader and all, there are very few professional cheerleaders that, uh, one, that I've ever met in person, uh, and number two, that uh, are worthy, I think, of uh, of a conversation and our little theme here at Good Seats Still Available about teams and leagues and things that uh, in in professional sports that don't exist anymore. But before we even get to all that fun stuff, um, and I know this is probably a little boring and pedantic for you, but how does one become a professional cheerleader?
0: Well, it's it's an easy story. I I wasn't qualified for anything else. (laughs) (laughs) I'll say that. Um, It started off about 50 years ago. A great friend of mine, Don Bogdan, asked me to go to a game with him. And uh, he handed me a drum. He brought a drum to the game and a bugle and a bugle takes talent to play a drum does it. He handed me the drum and that was about 50 years ago. I started hitting the drum. He started playing the bugle and it was at San Jose state. And I was a student there at the time. And so was he. And by the end of the game, I had like 200 people, me and him had 200 people cheering and I, we thought that was fun. That was the first game at Saturday state for football that season. So I went back, and he said, let's go next week. We were having fun, and we did. And I did the same thing, and then by then I had like 500 people cheering, and by the third game, I had the whole student body cheering for us. And so from there, the cheerleaders ask, asked me out for being a cheerleader, and that was in 1968.
1: Well, So let me get let me get and, this straight. For our for our listeners now, this, this might be the first time we've ever had a guest who uh, didn't get into sports to uh, go out on dates, but literally got into cheerleading to get go out on dates. That's right. <laughs> what uh, what what's what sport? I mean, so this was football. Was this a, so? Was Spartan Stadium relatively new then in '68? Uh, uh, was no, football-
0: no, Spartan Stadium was old. It, it was a big time, old time, eighteen thousand seat stadium at San Jose State. By then, it was just San Jose State. It wasn't a uni- university even. And it became a university a couple of years later. And, uh, I started cheering there and the cheerleaders asked me and him to come out as a cheerleader for next year to try out. And I didn't want to do it. I was on the national championship judo team. And we were at the time, the national champions, and the next year we were the national champions and all, uh, all six years I was on the judo team. We were the national champions for, for NCAA. So I really didn't want to be a cheerleader, but my. My roommate, Don Bogdan, had a lot more domineering personality in me, and he forced me to go out to trial for cheerleading, and I was picked.
1: Well, okay. So, uh, ostensibly, you went to San Jose State to study something, right? Not necessarily cheerleading or, or judo. Uh, what, could one even be recruited for judo at that time?
0: Uh, well, they were the national champions. That's why I went to San Jose State, because I was on a judo team in junior college. So I went out there and I wanted to compete in judo on a national level with, with the best team in the country. So I picked San Jose state and they accepted me. And so that's where my judo career started. And then it morphed, it morphed over to, to cheerleading you know, eventually. But I was uh, actually going out to be a school teacher. I was in an, an industrial arts school teacher for four years after I graduated.
1: Now, was that was that the, the line of study that you were pursuing in the classroom to become an elementary or a high school, uh, 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 a secondary school teacher? Or did you yes, just kind of I fa- fall into a shop
0: it? class? I was teaching shop, uh, wood shop, metal shop, electronics. And that's what I was pursuing. And when I graduated in 1971, I went on. And for four years, I taught and I taught mostly electronics.
1: OK, so uh, for our listeners and we're going to we're going to plug uh, the book early and often here uh, during during the during the conversation, uh, the book you uh, all need to uh, to to go out and read to, to, to hear this further is called Crazy George, Still Crazy After All These Cheers. Get it. Um, and uh, it's clear uh, that your high school teaching days uh, were both uh, seminal In guiding you towards perhaps your professional cheerleading career uh, but also maybe wasn't necessarily maybe the career you envisioned uh, during those those years right
0: well I wasn't envisioning being at school teacher I found out that 90% of the students were smarter than me and I didn't have a chance and I wasn't a disciplinarian I mean I was I was flamboyant because I was also crazy George at the same time Cause I'd already got that reputation. So it was sort of a hard image to bring into a classroom. Cause everybody in the Bay area knew me from San Jose state and doing the Oakland seals, which came along later professionals, uh, hockey. And that was uh, a great time with them. But, but then I was a teacher. I was just having uh fun with the Oakland seals and I was terrible at it. So I made a transition after four years. Did okay. I quit teaching to become professional.
1: Okay, so you were, doing, you were doing cheerleading gigs essentially on the side, correct?
0: Very much on the side. I was just doing little high school rallies while I was teaching. And a couple of them, maybe maybe one or two or five a year. And then I started doing the Oakland Seals. I went up for one game with the soccer team from Books or High where I taught. They asked me to go with them. I did. I brought my drum. I was just going to sit with them and get them cheering during the game. I started off, and my uh, cheerleading personality kicked in. I got one section cheering. I got them going so good, I went to the next section. Pretty soon, I was all over the Oakland Coliseum. I destroyed the place that night. Oakland uh, Seal fans had never seen anything like it in their life. The players never saw anything like it in their life. And so at the end of that game, when I went back the next day, uh, the teacher that brought me, uh, Mr. Rouse, he handed me the newspaper, and one of the Oakland Seals players wanted me to come back to another game, and he said he would give me two of his tickets if I'd show up, and so I went back to another Seals game, and that's the way I got on with the Seals, and I did them for four years.
1: So we had uh, as our very first guest as a matter of fact, a, a number of weeks ago, uh, Mark Gretschmill, whose uh, film uh, you were part of uh, the the uh, California Golden Seal story. and um, it, it's clear that uh, that you were uh, a, a perhaps lasting memorable part of that team which for all intents and purposes were was largely forgotten uh, shortly thereafter. Um, how did um, uh, how did you even I mean did you ha- were you even a hockey fan? had you ever seen? Pro hockey with the seals, uh, and how about the name? I mean, the name wasn't whether well, the California Golden Seals, Oakland Seals. Seems like it was always kind of in a, in disarray.
0: Yes, it was. It was the greatest team. They had a lot of heart, but hardly well. They had ability, but not as much ability as the other teams. But well, we had an interesting fan base, and the four years I was with them, we just almost changed the face of hockey fans. I mean, we became radical. And the fans loved it, but it never translated into better attendance because they were always last place in the league. So, and that really helps to have some wins.
1: Sure, did it, but it did it translate into paying gigs? Did you get any money for your efforts? I, I would assume some little little chunk of change was coming your way before these these antics. No, well,
0: at the, at the end, the last two, about the last two years, with the seal they started giving me thirty five dollars a game for expenses to come on up and. Uh, and do the game, so I was about forty miles from them. So it it was to pay for my gas, and I sort of fretted on how much it was costing me to come up there. But they gladly paid me the thirty-five dollars every game I made. But I was teaching at the time, so I couldn't I couldn't go into a lot of a lot of games on weeknights because I had to teach the next day. But it was fun, and I did most of the weekend games. And but that triggered other teams seeing me in the league. And it started getting some notoriety, so that's that was helping a lot.
1: All right. So what? So uh, before we get into uh, the the next stage of this evolution, uh, where are you getting the gumption, shall we say, to to even do this? Right. I mean, it's not you're clearly not uh, in this for the money. Certainly at this point, right? Uh, and yeah. and you have a talent, right? And and you are being you are you're, you're memorable, uh, and it, I, ostensibly you're having I'm guessing a good time. But, like, where do you get the courage to even sort of do this, uh, and, and why?
0: Well, the why of it is, is actually, it never, it never took any courage. For some reason, my genes, my makeup, my personality fit in perfect for what would become the only professional cheerleader in the world, where uh, I actually travel to other teams, and I get other multiple teams that fans cheering. This personality, I never asked to practice what I do. I never thought about what I was going to do. All I realized is I was having more fun than anybody in the place. And eventually, as I became a professional, they were paying me to have more fun than anybody in the place. So I was just loving the whole concept. And I was ultra shy when I, was, when I started off in high school. I never even had a date in high school. I never even talked to a girl in high school. I was so shy.
1: Well, you mentioned that in your book. You have a whole chapter devoted to that sort of that part of your life. What, what do you think kind of sort of made you get the courage to kind of go out and act crazy, quote unquote?
0: Well, I realized I was a <laughs> professional male model when I wasn't cheerleading. <laughs> I love saying that. Of course, nobody's ever paid me to be a professional male model it's been 50 years i've been waiting <laughs> uh
1: but the drum the drum has been with you ever since though no
0: yes when uh when my friend don bogdan gave me that first game in 1967 he handed me that drum and uh i hate to say it but that is a secret to my success this drum uh, is everything to becoming a professional cheerleader
1: well, okay, so so take me now to I guess uh, later in '75. You also uh, caught the attention of a fledgling North American Soccer League team, and, and as uh, our listeners know, I'm I'm a huge sort of geek for the old NASL, and, and arguably that's partially the reason why uh, I'm doing these podcasts uh, is because of, of scratching that sort of itch. But the San Jose Earthquakes were. Quite the thing in 74, 75 in the Bay Area, and frankly, were a model, if not the model franchise for the NASL at that time. We're, was that your next step and and towards professionalism, so to speak?
0: You have to put that in words. Just you said it right. The 74 and the 75, the 76 earthquakes those years was a renaissance for soccer. They changed the face of soccer more than anybody had ever come before. The fans, because of San Jose's images like the underdog to San Francisco and to Oakland, when the fans finally got their own identity with the earthquakes, it was so amazing. It was like Camelot. And the fans, this Dick Berg, the general manager, he had the philosophy. He wanted the fans involved in the game. And he'd watched me years before when he was with Stanford, he saw me and he saw how I got the fans. I could out, I could out, you know, in Stanford games, I'd bring 3,000 San Jose State fans in and we'd out yell 50,000 Stanford fans. And I mean out yell them all through the game. And he saw that effect and he wanted that at the earthquake games. And so he brought me in. For that first earthquake game in '74, their opener, and it set a standard for the league. The, the mayhem, the noise, the excitement, the love of the team, and it's still—it's still to this day. The fans still remember all the players from the earthquakes in '74, and the quakes—the the quake the players are still revered and loved and everybody comes up to him and talks to him and knows him
1: so you must have been aghast when uh major league soccer came a call in later on in the uh in 96 and decided to call them the clash <laughs> they came to the yeah they to... I,
0: I didn't like i mean i didn't dislike it but I, you know the earthquake sanity image and i don't know i don't get into the management and or the philosophies uh but but that name, the Earthquakes and the fan loyalty, I, I, I don't know if they lost some of it or, or what, but I thought it was a mistake. But I worked for the Clash and I had a great time with them and it was fun and they still had great enthusiasm, the fans, for soccer. And But back in like 74, 90% of those people at that first game had never seen a soccer game, had mm-hmm. no idea what the rules were. Mm-hmm. They were there. Because of that momentum, Dick Berg got got them to think that they were part of the team. And to seal it off was when I was there leading the cheers, and I was getting them so involved in that game. that They just fell in love with, with the team, and from then on... You know, we couldn't be stopped.
1: Were you uh, Were you at the, uh, were you part of the 1975 Soccer Bowl that year, even though the Quakes weren't in it, there, there was obviously the national championship game of the NASL, the first time they called it the Soccer Bowl in 75. Were, were you cheering at that game, too, on CBS TV?
0: That was the one at San Jose? Yes, correct. Yes, yeah, I, I was there. They invited me to come in, and uh, it was just fabulous. Yes, I I had a, just the greatest time, and, and I, and I don't know if you know the exact history, but up till that season when the earthquakes opened up, no team I think ever drew over eight thousand people a game mm-hmm. in all the years they had the league until that expansion year. And then the earthquakes opened up that game with sixteen or fifteen or sixteen thousand fans, they had to delay the game forty five minutes because the lines that were going out onto the street because they weren't expecting that many people to show up. They had to delay the game. And then once the game started, I had the fans organized and trained and I got this earthquake's cheers going back and forth, which is still a staple today.
1: Absolutely. And, and, and growing up in the metropolitan New York area <clears throat> as a Cosmos fan, I think, uh, and frankly, as a, as a, as a little baby uh, soccer fan, but watching this sort of foreign sport on my television, um, I think that's the first time I actually saw you was during that 75 uh, soccer bowl game. Now, of course, have I gone on YouTube and, and dug hard for that, that, that game? No, I should. Uh, and I suspect it's out there, but we should probably look uh, after the fact for that, for that, uh, for that video. So, all right, let me ask you this then. So, so clearly you're, you're gaining a, some reputation in the Bay area, but it, it seems then you kind of also got uh, attracted to or by uh, folks outside the Bay Area, in uh, for other teams in the league, but also other leagues themselves, no?
0: Yes, it all started with the earthquakes, and almost everything I got after that, all the teams that hired me, came from me playing or cheering against them. And I started with the earthquakes, and all the other teams would come in, see the reaction, the fan reaction. But the big secret was that first opening day game. They brought in Lamar Hunt that it was actually the owner of the league. Mm-hmm. And of course, up till that time, nobody drew over 8,000 games. He came in, was invited in, and he, he wanted to see the opening game for us. He watched it, and he could not believe the reaction I got from this earthquake fan. And he went to Dick Burke. He was sitting by him. And finally, he asked Dick Burke. He couldn't believe what I was doing. He wanted to know if, he would, if I could come to Dallas and do his Dallas tornado team and Dick Berg the next year was became their general manager left the earthquakes. And when he did that, I was invited in to do that game. I went over so well, it was so much excitement at the Dallas game that he'd never seen before. From his fans that he asked Dick Berg if maybe I'd come in and do a Kansas City Chiefs game. <laughs> he owned the Kansas City Chiefs, mm-hmm. and so I was invited into that that game, and that game I came in as a preseason game. There was sixty thousand people. It was a preseason game. They lost forty five to nothing. <laughs> And at the end of the game, they had never saw their fans sold out. Lamar Hunt couldn't believe it. It came up that week after I'd left and offered me a full-time contract for the Kansas City Chiefs as he'd never seen their fans react like that before.
1: Is that the moment that you recognized you could do this as a full-time profession?
0: Yes, it did. And at that moment, at the same time, that was happening. That, at that moment i started realizing since i really didn't want to teach <laughs> oh yeah <laughs> i didn't want to teach anymore. i was there four years it's driving me nuts but I still <laughs> you could say it was driving money. you
1: crazy yeah yeah.
0: so when when he hired me and offered me the contract at the same time the bc lions brought me in for one game the same season that's uh, that's in the cfl the canadian
1: football sport. league right the bc lions what That's the Canadian Football League, right? The BC Lions? Yes, the BC
0: Lions. Canadian football in Vancouver. And I did one game from there at the start of the season. I went over so big, I transformed their fans to just actual fans, to fanatics, Barry and the other teams when they come in with noise. And they hired me full-time. And that's when I resigned from teaching. And that's what started my career with those two teams, or three teams.
1: So... Onwards and upwards. I mean, you have another chapter later in, in your book. Again, Crazy George, still crazy after all these cheers is the book. It's available. the
0: world's greatest sports book. There you go. I've, I've, it is beautiful. Why? Because I got pictures of you. Pictures. My good looking.
1: <laughs> and available wherever good books are sold, of course, we'll have it on our website, certainly when the show is up.
0: Oh, thank you.
1: At uh, the very least. Um but uh, you actually got into a bidding war for your services. That's how popular you were becoming.
0: Oh yeah, that—that's where I was. After the first year of quitting teaching, I was making an okay living. I was making as much or even more than I was made teaching. So I was making like ten or fifteen or twelve, fifteen thousand dollars a year back in nineteen seventy-five. Sure. But but that's not, I mean, that's an enough to make a living. It was more than I was making teaching. And I was busy and I was having fun. But but if you're talking about that anymore, that was fun. That's what catapulted my, my earnings. And, and this is just a great story if you want to hear it all.
1: Absolutely. Go right ahead.
0: Well, I was doing the Houston Oilers. I mean, I was doing the Kansas City Chiefs. And at the time, I didn't even have a contract with them. And and Houston came into town, and I was cheering against the Houston Oilers. And Bud Adams was watching the game. He's the owner of the Houston Oilers. And at the end of the game, he was so amazed. He thought we'd lost the game. He said, I thought we'd lost the game. There was so much cheering here, and we won. We beat you guys. <laughs> And so he told me this when I'd come up to to uh, Lamar Hunt's suite, and he was a guest. And he asked me, he asked me, I, he said, "I want you to cheer for us." Well, at the time, I didn't want to. I really needed a full time contract, and they weren't giving it to me. Hmm. So, but I was in the middle of fifty chief fans in Lamar Hunt's suite with five bedrooms. And it was gorgeous. But well, what can I say with 50 Chief fans listening to me? But I needed the job. Mm-hmm. So Bud Adams said, George, I want you to work for us. And I love this story. And I said, Well, I can't do it. I work for the Chiefs. And he said, Well, he says, How much do you get paid? And I said, 500 a game plus expenses. He said, Well, son, I'll give you 600. Now, Everybody is me, I wanted to say yes at $500. <laughs> I needed a job because I didn't have a full-time contract. I didn't know if they were going to use me next day. So Bud Adams says, son. And I said no, but I wanted to say yes. So he said, I'll give you $700. And then he says, son, I'll give you 800 And I kept saying no. He gets up to $900. And then he says, lad, come over here. Lad is he his general manager. Now, Bud Adams, the owner. Now, Ladderzog, his general manager, walks over and says, Yes, George, uh, what's going on? And, and Bud says, I was offered him $900 to do our game. And he said, No. And so Ladderzog looks at me, and says, I'll give you $1,000. <laughs> and I said, No. Bud Adams says, I'll give you $1,100. Ladd <laughs> says, I'll give you 12 You're bidding against each other, and they're from the same team. <laughs> this is good. And I wanted to say yes at 500 <laughs> So they get up, to they keep getting back and forth. They get up to $1,500. And I keep saying no. So, uh, I guess Bud Adams probably looked around and said, well, maybe we ought to get him out of this crowd. So he asked me to go down with him to his limousine. <laughs> in Kansas City, we go down... The Aero down the elevator at Arrowhead Stadium. Go out, and there's his limousine. It must be forty feet long. He gets into the car. I get into the limousine. He goes to the back, sits down. I sit down in the front of me. thing. As soon as he sits down, I said, "I'll do your game." <laughs> and so my seat now is fifteen hundred. This is good, I thought. And they were outbid each other, and are the same team. What an associated genius I am.
1: <laughs> and so then you, you, so how did you break the news? How did you essentially walk away from the Chiefs who had, and, and Lamar Hunt in particular, who had kind of, kind of really taken you to the next level in the first place?
0: Oh, yeah. Well, I was loyal to them. I stayed with them that whole season, and they hired me for every game. And the only time I went to, to the Oilers games is when they were playing away. So I got to do four Houston Oilers games. Well, I went to the first Houston Oilers game, and I just started place. This is during the start of the lovely year. Lovely I had more noise than they ever saw in their life. I had cheers going back and forth across the stadium. I had 4 corner cheers. I had people clapping, the whole stadium clapping, the whole stadium whistling, the whole stadium with the Houston Oilers back and forth across the stadium. And once Bud Adams saw that, he was hooked, and he said, "I want you every game you can make here." But I stayed doing all the all the Minnesota, I mean the uh, Kansas City Chiefs games I could do until the end of the season. Was uh,
1: was the AstroDome uh, because it's an enclosed structure? Was it was it even louder, or were you able to do any more unique or other uh, interesting things that you couldn't do in a more, say, open air kind of environment?
0: Uh, not really. Uh, they, everybody thinks the dome helps, and it does somewhat. But you, to make the noise loud, you've got to have loud noise. You have to have the noise there first. And if you don't have that, yeah, the other dome might add a little bit, a few Vs here and there. But, but what I do and what I did back there, and I, I tell you, I, I look at all these TVs. I was watching everybody. Back then, football fans were, professional football fans weren't that loud. And so what I what I did in Houston was so radical. Bud Adams loved it so much. I transformed the fans into fanatics again that Bud Adams at the end of that season and since I didn't have a full time contract with the Kansas City Chiefs, he came back to me after the season, he wanted to hire me. And the an Oiler and the Viking, I mean the Kansas City Chiefs already told me that season I was doing, I was like frosting on the cake. And they didn't think they could afford me at 500 a game. So now the next season comes. Now they're looking at, I'm now at a $1,500 level. where well, I didn't even think they'd want to talk about it. And so I had a bidding war between them, the Chiefs, and the oilers that next uh, season. And they both got up to $1,500 again. And I went back with Kansas City because that was my team. So I stayed with Kansas City. They both offered the same amount, but because of loyalty, I'd been with the Chiefs for three years. I stayed with them.
1: Sure, but at least you established a, a nice higher benchmark for your services. So
0: Yeah, I mean, and, but... and once that happened, it was great because then all the other teams I was working for or I would be working for, you know, I, I can now say that my benchmark salary was fifteen hundred a day, which was a lot better than five hundred, and it made it so that I was actually making a pretty respectable living now.
1: So, uh, so put it in context, right? So this, we're talking about sort of like you know the, the mid to late seventies, uh, early eighties. Um, you know, the 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 uh, in-person stadium experience, obviously. Uh, just a little different than, say, today's, you know, big jumbotron screens and stereo sound and, you know, assault on the senses, if you will. Um, can you give our listeners a, a bit of a sense, especially those who may not have seen you in your, um, you know, in your ascendancy, uh, what kind of things uh, you were doing and the atmosphere you were creating uh, in the stadia?
0: Well, you know, this goes back to my book and uh, why I wrote the book. I started off writing the book because all the fans knew that I was like the only professional cheerleader in the world. I'd done something nobody had ever seen before, and they were really interested in how I became a professional cheerleader. And there was nobody else around in the United States that does it, and I don't think, and I researched it pretty good, there's anybody in the world that's ever done this job. So that was the one main reason why I was going to write the book because it was an interesting profession since I'm the only one that does it. And then secondly, I invented the wave. So with those two premises, I started writing this book and then we finally came up with the name, you know, still crazy after all these cheers. But that was why I started. And the only reason is I was going to write this book. What? As I interviewed general managers and owners of teams and the different sports and, and started reviewing the articles about the noise factor, hmm. I started realizing there's a third track to this book. And that is the amount of fan participation and how I revolution and revolutionized and changed that perspective of the game. And that's sort of why the book, why I really got more interested in that aspect because teams hired me because I created so much more noise and so much more energy at the game and they realize it affects the game, but it also affects their attendance. It gets fans loyal to the team themselves. They love it when they're participating and they think they're helping affect the game. They're part of the game. They're part of the team. They're that 12th man or 13th man in Canadian football or whatever number it is, 10th man for baseball. Fans started to realize they could impact maybe the outcome of the game, especially football and especially at the start, because I took teams, most teams, their fans were maybe at 10 or 15 percent of their potential they weren't screaming that much and i brought those fans in from 10 to 15 percent and i raised them up to 95 percent and and that's why teams started seeing me and wanted me to come in because they wanted that effect
1: all right yeah, let's uh I, we'll we'll talk about the wave in a second but but before we get off of this this particular topic i i'm I'm really curious as to, as you get hired by all these other teams, whether they're paying you $1,500 or or, or or simply just getting into other leagues and other teams and just expanding your roster of, of, of clients served, shall we say, how do you get into uh, team and crowd environments, say, where the team themselves is not performing very well on the field or, uh, you know, it's maybe a struggle, like the team isn't really doing you any favors. And you kind of have to lift them on your shoulders. I mean, how do you how do you walk into an environment like that and turn it around, Mm. as you said, from fans into fanatics? I got to think there were some times where, you know, it was kind of a lost cause or, or, or a bit more of a challenge with certain teams and leagues and stadia than than others.
0: Well, that's it. There wasn't because I was so radical, so different and my, my philosophy, why I'm successful, because every fan, no matter what the team is like, wants to cheer for their team. Mm-hmm. They want to be part of the team. And back in those early years, I gave them that excuse. I got them involved and loving the team and loving what they were doing to support the team, even if they were doing terrible. Because the philosophy of fans back when I start off, I think their mental state was if when in college, when they went to college, they cheered for their team because the players loved the game and weren't getting paid. And so their part of it was to cheer for the players on the field, their university. They love their university and the players weren't getting paid. When they went over to the pro sport in the same city, now you're looking at players down on the field. And they're going, I don't have to cheer for them. These guys are at the top of their game, and they're getting paid big bucks to play. And when they're getting paid big bucks, I want them to win because I'm paying big bucks for the tickets. And so there was that lack of that college atmosphere for pros because you expect your pro guy to be the greatest because he's getting the big salary. And so that was the big DAP and the white pro teams. And you know, as I go through all this uh, review of, of articles and talking to different general managers, that's what I believe where I transformed that pro crowd into three like a s like a semi, like a college crowd where they love their team and they believe the cheerleading. And I was so effective at it that as the years go by, the NFL actually tried to have me banned from football because I was the only one when the other teams came into the place I was cheering. They couldn't function. These guys, all these guys like the Pittsburgh Steelers came in. Chuck Noel couldn't couldn't get his quarterback Terry Bradshaw to call audibles because they couldn't hear the audibles. I bury them in noise. And they never experienced that in any other stadiums. And that's why all the teams in the league finally voted on a crowd noise rule. And it was specifically written against me.
1: How did you take to that? Was, that a, was there a legal uh, action for that against? Uh, oh yeah, I
0: was, I was building up a whole legal action because it was going to be loss of income to me. I mean, they were, trying, they were enforcing this rule it was a ridiculous rule. They were going to penalize the team five yards if the fans made too much noise. And they, it, this was voted on in the rule book. And it's, I don't know if it's still in the rule book, but luckily for them, they were at least not stupid enough to try to enforce it. But they came up to me many times during the game, the referees, and were threatening me with it. And the rule, you want me to read the rule to you? Sure. This is great. In, in 1989, they finally formalized it. And the rule reads that, that, the, that the teams have to control it. Now, this is the wording their cheerleaders and their mascots. None of the cheerleaders or none of the mascots ever made any noise. And after it says cheerleaders and mascots, it says including. Noise making specialists hired exclusively, exclusively for that purpose. There's been only one noise making specialist ever. That's me hired by the team. That's me has ever been had that position. And I'm the only one that generated the noise that they're they now are going to penalize the teams for. And they would penalize the other teams. They're penalizing them. I work for.
1: So did, th- did that put the kibosh on teams hiring you ever, uh, after that?
0: No, nope, because I got around the rules or I pushed the rules and I, and I violated the rules <laughs> because I figured and I started collecting back then it was hard to get video so I would note it. But they said that when the offensive huddle for the other team breaks all cheerleading all mascots and all noise making specialists had to stop doing the cheer for so when the other team breaks the huddle. I had to stop the defense cheer, and I had to stop the noise. What a joke. And they were going to penalize the team for it. It was just unbelievable. So I started knowing and I would see video of, of other games. And every time you would see that offensive team break the huddle, the visiting team, sure. sometimes they'd be panning the crowd. And there's the cheerleaders still leading their little dances. There's the mascot still doing his little flips. Everybody can keep going. But who do they come up to and talk to about the noise every time? Me. So I started collecting all this stuff and just voting down, writing down these times I'd see it in a little notebook so that if I ever had to go to court, I could say, look. There's 50 examples where the cheerleaders are still cheering after the huddle breaks. There's the mascot still mascotting and you want to go after me and you want to penalize my team because I'm still cheering. So that's what I did. But luckily I'd say after about two years of that rule, they really stopped enforcing it. Thank goodness.
1: Well, on some level that must've made you feel a little bit, proud or or that you would achieve something right with your craft
0: well yeah that's after i started writing the book and i started interviewing mike 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 lynn of the minnesota vikings why he hired me and how it how he had to go to the league and fight for me because they wanted to ban me and how uh, the houston Oilers people when i was working for them had to go to the league and fight for me because the league was trying to stop me so I had, all, but I unfortunately, it was one or two or three teams I was working for, and there's 60 or 80 or how many teams are in the league that don't want me because they have to come in and play the Houston Oilers, and that's why over the years now finally I mean it's been many years now all the teams and most of the fans and most of the crowds see I took crowds from 10 percent which the teams were used to put them to 95%. Now, most of the teams in the league were used to be at 10%. Most of them have conditioned their fans and they, they are reacting and they're supporting their team. And they're up to like 65% enthusiasm. So that effect is now sort of universal. Now, if I went into a league or a team, it's at 65%. And I take them to 95, what would I do 30% better? But before I took them from 10% to 95%, well, that's a big difference. And that's why people hired me. They couldn't believe what I did. And now that teams are at 65% for me to go in one person with just one um, unamplified voice mm-hmm. and walk through the crowd. And try to get noticed and try to scream out the cheers I want with that much background noise and screaming and yelling and the music blaring, because most teams now do non-stop typed- in music, they do non-stop whatever. I wouldn't stand out, and I wouldn't get that noticed, I think, anymore.
1: The book that uh, George is referring to is, uh, is the autobiography. It's called Crazy George, Still Crazy After All These Cheers, uh, co-written with uh, Patricia Timberg, I believe it is. That's my wife. Oh, there you That's go. That's that, that, e- Even better. Um, and, uh, you know, I, it's available wherever, you know, good books are sold, but it's also, uh, you also could find it on crazygeorge.com, which is, believe it or not, crazy's uh website and crazy obviously is one oh, yeah, K- yeah, I have a with you gotta go
0: to my website. I have pictures on it.
1: That's right. Crazy George with a K George.com. Crazy George.com. Um <laughs> and and there's there there are chapters uh, fascinating stories about uh, all these things that we talked about. But let's uh let's uh kind of get to uh something I'm sure uh you've talked about uh, ad nauseum but uh, in the context of of uh of this show and for our listeners um do you want to give us sort of the uh the uh the cliff notes version of how uh you created and then were ultimately uh crowned uh the creator of the wave right which is arguably the most famous uh, cheer there is in uh in american professional sports
0: i like you saying that yes i did invent <laughs> the wave. i don't claim to invent the wave i invented it mm-hmm. i have it on video and i have joe gargio the announcer for that when it was played at the when i started it the open a's Yankee playoff game on October 15th, 1981 has mm-hmm. been never been a wave before that date.
1: And the beginnings of that, though, uh, you kind of got a sense that something like this wave thing uh, could could kind of get started or or perhaps get uh, some kindling prior to that, right? I, you mentioned in your... Uh, yes. Yeah. You want to you give our, our listeners a little bit of a background of how you sort of Got to the A's thing?
0: Yeah, I'll I'll give you like how I I created the way everything you create doesn't create in one minute, except for the people that claim they invented it, they said it did it in one minute. But it took me about four years, and I started off with the idea that I used to do a cheer at San Jose State, where we had three sections of students where I cheered when I was a cheerleader, and the three sections in front of me I'd have one section stand up, I thought it up, and if they yell San, this middle section yells Jose, and the next middle state. And so each section it would go San Jose State and it'd start over, San Jose, State. And it looked fabulous but to the other side, the alumni side, which is the people that give money for the team. So at those football games they loved watching the San Jose State keep going and watching all the students, a thousand at each section, stand up and scream. So from there, that was sort of like an idea I had. I created that and they loved it. So I went as I became professional, I went to Colorado to do the Colorado Rockies. And I was doing a go Rockies go. I thought, oh I'll do a go Rockies coach here and I'd have one section said that they'll go and the other Rockies and the other go like I did at San Jose state. And I did that a few times and they loved it. And across the stadium, everybody watched this go Rockies, go, go Rockies go. And it was fun. And people laughed and it got some more energy to the crowd. And then a section down wanted to get involved. So I said, okay, I want this is going to be go Rockies, go Rockies. So I did not go, Rockies, go, Rockies. And it was so complicated, but I kept doing a little bit. Well, the next section wanted to do it. And all at once, I said, wait a second, stop. We're just going to yell, go. I don't, it's too complicated to know if you're a go or the Rockies. I said, everybody stand up one section at a time, go, go, go. Well, it kept going, and it went around the whole stadium. And the people were going, that's over. And it was basically a way, it was just, They were more sexual, but it was the wave. It was nuts. Everybody's like, go, 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 go. And the fans loved it. It gave so much energy to the crowd. So I got that cheer now, which is basically waves. And in fact, everybody in Colorado, the Rocky games are so mad at me because they say, George, we were doing it here way before you did it in Oakland. And I said, yeah, but you don't have it on. You don't have it on video. And you don't have famous announcers telling you that that was a way. And so I said, if you get it on video, you can prove I did it there. I'll give you credit for starting it. But I had that. game. then I get to California where the Oakland A's are playing. Well, before that, the year before, I'm doing rallies, high school rallies. And there's bleachers. Well, in the old days, maybe even today, bleachers didn't have aisles. All in seats when you pull out the bleachers sure. in a basketball court. And I'd do a rally and I couldn't do go, you know, the name of the school by sections, because there's no sections. Right 'm okay. I'll just point at everybody. I'd stand in the center of the court and I'd point. Everybody stand up, sit down as I point, and I'd just go around three hundred and sixty degrees. And I did it. It was the perfect wave. No wilds, no nothing. It was just the perfect wave. Around and around. And I loved it. So now I got that concept. Now I go to an Oakland A's New York Yankee playoff game in 1981. We'd already lost two games away. If we lose this game at home, we're eliminated. The place is going nuts. And I start thinking, I want to do this cheer here. And I said, all right. So I took three or four sections and I organized them. And I told them what I wanted. And I told them, and I knew once we started this, nobody down at the halfway around the Coliseum would know what I want. So I said, when we start this wave, I didn't even call them. I had no idea. I just said, when we start this year, I didn't name it. Somebody else came up with the wave name. So I, I told them what I wanted, but the secret was, I said, when we start this, It'll go down and maybe get, I don't know where it'll go to, but it'll probably die. Because nobody knows what they're supposed to do except in three sections. I started it. And it went about a little 10 sections down and died. And I had everybody in a section and I already told them, when it <laughs> dies, you boo. And it was a great boo. And now everybody sort of looks over and go, what's going on? I started it a second time. It went about a third or a half way around and died again. Now everybody on the side, the third base side booed, And that got everybody to realize what I wanted. Third time I started it. It started off great. All three decks were doing it now. The fans were going nuts, swung around behind home plate. They were on the first stage, came back to the, to the bleachers, to the outfield, the left field, the center field, back, came back to us. This was great, except I didn't tell them. I forgot. I want to keep going, and they all just stood up and applauded because they got it to go around, and I was pretending to be mad, but I loved it. I said, I don't want you to stop and applaud it. I want you to keep it going. So I started it a fourth time. Now, everybody in the Coliseum was doing it. All three decks were doing it. It came around. And when it came by Mars section, they kept it going. And it was like a locomotive. It had power. It had energy. And it just flew by and the fans with us, and it kept going and kept going and Joe bar the announcer, our national team was talking about it and screaming about it, and that was the day I claim and the the way it was born.
1: that's the, uh, that's just absolutely fascinating so when when did you know you had lightning in a bottle like when you left the game i mean did you did you have any idea obviously you hadn't seen the broadcast, so you had no idea of its uh, uh impact And that no
0: i had I had no idea about it because. I mean, and what I realized over the years, and maybe not that game, but I realized when I do the wave, it adds energy to the game. The fans get involved and they get this energy going. And the cheers that I do before a game, a wave, and compared with the cheers I do after a wave, there's more energy left over from the wave that makes the fans cheer even more. And so the, it adds to the energy, it adds to the fun, and it adds to the fans being involved with their team. And that carries over to a defense chair, to clapping, to back and forth chairs across the stadium. It just adds that extra spark, which I started realizing years and years later or oh, what it, it really does mean uh, for the game atmosphere.
1: Well, it's a it's a legacy for, for sure, and and certainly something that uh, is 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 part of the you know the sports uh, uh, folklore in this country, right? Uh, and that's something to be uh, especially proud of having having authored it, right?
0: Oh yeah, and that's really uh, you know in every October when I invented it, I start getting calls from Europe and from from Netherlands and you name the country, and uh, I'll, I'll get a call from Mexico or I'll get a call from wherever around the world because the, the wave is loved, especially at soccer events everybody in the world you know, loves soccer they play soccer and everybody does it around the world. And so they, they, they have some time, they start researching it and they finally find that I invented it And a few years ago, the New York times and ESPN, the magazine both researched it gave me credit for the wave because it was another person trying to claim it.
1: Um, so, lest our audience think that you're slowing down in any way, shape, or form, um, when we talked uh, late last week, you were uh, getting prepped for uh, the current incarnation of the San Jose Earthquakes game, which was on uh, Saturday, right? At Avaya Stadium? Oh,
0: yeah. One great game. We should have won that, like, like three goals, but we ended up tying it. But, oh, yeah, the Earthquakes, I'm still with them. I started in 1974. I've been with them almost every season. There's been some off years when they were folded, and then there was things when when they didn't use me for a year or two or three, and then new management came in. But for 40-something years, I've been cheering for the mighty earthquake.
1: So how do you – so uh, with Avaya Stadium, obviously relatively new since last year, uh, you know, a soccer-specific stadium, right? Smaller, more intimate, uh, and and for folks who have not been to Avaya Stadium and the – I guess the uh, world's largest outdoor bar. It, it, it's quite a. Yes, it, that's it, what we have. It's 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 a fantastic park. Um, do Do you feel that maybe stadia like that, those sort of soccer specific, smaller, intimate, are perhaps a little bit more palatable for you know the 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 uh, uh, the older older approach and and your earlier successes versus the the piped in music and all the stuff you were talking about before in these sort of modern stadia. You know, is it is it a better atmosphere? Yes. to Maybe do more of this again.
0: I think it's a wonderful atmosphere. First soccer, you know, they just it's a nonstop game, and so they don't pipe in all this music, and they they can't because they can't play music during the play, and that, that is more fitting for me, and it, it, it helps, but. But because it's nonstop, it's harder for me to get in during those little breaks they do have when the ball goes out of bounds or there's a penalty or or something like that or an injury, and I can jump in real quick and do it. So there's always challenges, but it's it's more traditional than the other sports, which uh, I I think over the years, I think almost all sports uh, started trying to go corporate. And that's harder to keep a real loyal fan base when you got big corporations buying big blocks of tickets. And then, of course, they give them away for promotional purposes for their company. And so that doesn't breed that atmosphere like you might get at uh, some uh, intimate place uh, like in uh, Boston or somewhere that has been around forever. So so I do appreciate the quakes and the way they, they keep that. That fan loyalty based on on a traditional game instead of the piped in music, which is you know you can play more. Fans are really loud. Well, ninety percent of it comes from a fifty thousand watt amplifier. Oh. You know, it's it's not the same.
1: Have they retired your number yet, the Quakes?
0: <laughs> I usually wear zero or one, but yeah, you know, they haven't they haven't retired it. But they did bring out a bobblehead doll of me the what? world's greatest looking bobblehead doll. And if Tiger Woods had a bobblehead doll, mine could out drive it. <laughs> I am great. And if Fabio had a bobblehead doll, I would be better looking at his bobblehead. <laughs> what,
1: when, uh, what game, uh, What? when When did the bobblehead come out?
0: Uh, it came out as a promotion for the earthquakes. And they gave me one day every season ticket package this year it was sent out with, with the season ticket package. And, uh, and it talks, and it's got a button, and I even cheer It's that talking bobble in.
1: That's great. I, you know, I would if you would, if you wouldn't mind somehow sending me a picture of that. Uh, I, I'll search for it online, but I, I'd love to have that that bit. That's uh, and I'll, and I'll see if I can find a way to eBay my way to, to a a version of that because that's that sounds that just sounds perfect. All right, before we go, I, I want to do a little a little fun little thing here at the end here. Uh, I, I guess, for lack of a better term, I'm going to call it Team Bingo um, because you have cheered for. I don't know, scores and scores of different teams and minor leagues and colleges. And uh, but obviously on this this here little podcast, we're um, we're very interested in in teams and leagues that don't exist anymore. Again, don't know why it's just sort of it's a thing. It's it's why I'm doing what I do. And you've had your fair share of of experiences with teams and leagues that don't exist anymore. Um, oh, yes. <laughs> so let, let me throw out a couple of names and see if any of these uh, if there's any memory or two that might pop in. And it's OK. Oh, if they.
0: Boy. Well, okay, but
1: let's give it a try. And if you don't, that's okay, No big deal. But um, these these are names that are interesting to me because nobody talks about them anymore. So how about the um, so do you remember indoor soccer? Do you remember the Wichita Wings at all? Anything? memorable?
0: Oh, God, they were great. I had such a good time in Wichita. Of course, I remember the Wings. Are they gone now?
1: Well, uh, the uh, there is this thing called the uh, Major Arena Soccer League, which is, you know, a a, a very sort of uh, smaller derivative of but nothing as big time as the old major indoor soccer league when, when you were cheering for the wings. But uh, was there anything different about the indoor soccer game versus say the outdoor game that you kind of remember? I mean, you also did uh, there's another team in the indoor game called the Houston hot shots, um, indoor soccer, anything different about that versus doing it outdoors or is it just kind of the same thing, but in smaller confines?
0: I, uh, yeah, I think it's mostly, uh, and it, it was quite rapid and they, they, it inbounded quite rapidly and there wasn't a lot of quick there was a lot of quick little breaks and i have to modify for every little sport every sport i have to do it a little different but uh indoor soccer it was really great and, and i don't know how they did it but these used to be back when the first league first started off it would be like four to six five to three and i don't know how they did it but now I see these scores, sometimes it's 20 to 17. How can you score that much in soccer? Uh, I guess they made the goal bigger, or, or uh, the goalie has to wear a blindfold or something. I don't know what the rules, but they can score a huge amount of goals. So, so I haven't been following the last few years, but it, somehow they made it more exciting, I guess they thought, by more goals.
1: And um, on the outdoor side, uh, do you remember anything in particular about either the Tampa Bay Rowdies or the Tulsa Roughnecks, uh, the old NASL?
0: Oh, yeah. Yes. Well Tampa Bay Rowdies were really good to me. Rodney Marston, he was a superstar player. And he came in and what an atmosphere they gave me for some of those some of those great games. And uh, it was it was fun that I did a lot of soccer games. Of course, I was doing the earthquakes and back then I didn't promote myself. And I didn't have a manager. All I did was I'd cheer against the team. They'd see how great it was. And then they'd ask me to come there. And while I was in Tampa Bay, I was doing a game for them. And a team from England, Bradford City, their general managers, or I got there some sort of counselor that run the team. They were all there visiting and they watched me at a Tampa Bay Rowdy game. And they hired me to go to England and so I was going to cheer for Bradford city. <laughs> that was going to be fun. And then a week before the game, I had the airline tickets and everything. They called me up and said, we're rioting in England. <sighs> and if you come, you got two choices. You will be a king and they will love you forever. If we win, if you, if we lose, you're going to be killed. <laughs> so I canceled the game.
1: <sighs> wow. That's, that's very interesting. Okay, last one. Uh, And this is from the world of uh, the CFL, which you mentioned before with BC. But um, uh, some of our listeners will remember, as I believe you will, because there were two teams in the CFL that were based in the United States for a couple of years. The sort of ill-fated expansion, shall we say, into the United States of the Canadian Football League, Uh, the Sacramento Gold Miners and the San Antonio Texans. Anything stand out from that?
0: Yep, I, I, I was with them both, and I was down in San Antonio at the Riverwalk. It was so great, and the owner was so good to me, too. I mean, owners are great to me, and I, I, unfortunately, can't remember the gentleman's name, darn it. But, you know, I remember, I, I just loved Canadian football, and I was with the Vancouver, uh, the BC Lions, for like 20, 30 years. That was probably a team I had more than anybody except the earthquake, <laughs> And so I I love Canadian football and I did some of their breakups. I've never done a uh Super Bowl with a team that I was with, so unfortunately most teams hire me are usually desperate and they, they want fans to think they won the game when they walk out when they actually lost it.
1: Well, there you go. If the if anybody at the NFL is uh, is listening to this broadcast, uh let's uh let us uh put the uh the cherry on Crazy George's uh, uh, Sunday uh, of a career by uh, trying to get him into uh, a Super Bowl, shall we? I, I can't imagine why not even at least a, a Pro Bowl, right? Which desperately needs uh, some reinvention and some real fan, you know, uh, enthusiasm. I would think at the very least that would be a place where your your talents would be um, uh, would be uh, desired. But but you know, I, I I think that would be that would be a worthwhile enterprise to get Crazy George into a Super Bowl. Uh, that's, to me, that would be the piece de resistance and, and perhaps the, the ultimate opportunity to, to retire with grace and dignity and a, a long legacy career of, of cheerleading uh, throughout this country. Oh, you right.
0: that, that's nice. I'd love that. Now, do we have time for one last little quick story?
1: I'd Absolutely. Go right ahead, George.
0: Okay. One thing you never brought up in my became almost famous or, or infamous nerd got me with the San Jose Earthquakes. I started doing entrances from the first game to, to start the game off. I'd bring the game ball in. And I did it, the first one with it. I came in at an ambulance and they actually thought some player had dropped dead. And I did that and I started doing entrances. Huh. And of course when you do these entrances, you got to top them with bigger entrances. So, at at, at, a, at a few, I just want to tell you a couple Please, of you know, right entrances back. One of my entrances, I decided to hang glide into a football game. And the week before, I'd hang glided into the soccer game. And I, and I was being on a tow line. I was going to be towed across the field. I was going to go up about 20 feet. He goes to the end, stops, I land, and it would be a great entrance being on the hang glider. Well, the guy never got above about 18 miles an hour. <laughs> I didn't have enough speed to lift off. And I ran the whole length of the field. So that was sort of a bummer. <laughs> sort of. <laughs> so the next week, there's another game, football. And I'm doing San Jose State I against Santa Clara. And I said, yes, I want to do the football. I want this hand glider entrance again. But oh, we're going to do it right. So we practiced. I got it so I could go up about 20 feet. Toes me around the whole field. I land. It was great. That was crap. Game comes. Now the guy's excited that's driving the vehicle that's lifting me off the ground. He's supposed to go 22 miles an hour. He's going across the field. I lift off. He's going 20, 22. I'm doing great. I'm up to like 15 feet. He gets to 24. I'm starting to go up more, and I can't get out of a climb. He goes to 26, and I'm going up. And, up, and I've got it all the way back to go down. I don't go down. And I go it higher and higher. Now he gets to the end of the field. He's supposed to stop the goal line. Does he stop? No. He drives under the goal post. And I'm on a tow line. What am I going to do? Now I'm up like 30 feet. I look down. And I have no choice. I can't go over the goal post because I'm on this tow line. So I flare out and I drop down. I come out to the bottom, and I clear out the bottom, and guess what? The opposing team is huddled there, and I smash into them, blood everywhere, mine, because they got pads on And so that was one of my interests. I just had to talk about that because it was so fun. I lived through it
1: uh oh, that's i mean and and ironic that you're talking about your entrances as we uh, as we wrap up uh, and end our our conversation here but uh, one last question to to end it then um, how much longer do you think you uh you will continue to do what you do it's uh it's clearly uh a a um a physical endeavor and um you know uh it's 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 clearly something you're still passionate about um how many more uh games and and years do you think you have in you to uh, uh, to keep the cheers coming in in, in maybe what is a, lo- a dying art?
0: Well, I think, I, I really believe that uh, I'd like to become almost like an ambassador to a couple of things, like San Jose State and the Earthquakes, but but I still get a great reaction uh, at the games, especially at the Earthquake game, because everybody knows me. Absolutely. Everybody knows what I want. The only limitation I have anymore is, is I really don't have the incredible lung Mm -hmm. power to be able to actually yell across the stadium. I used to be almost heard across the stadium. I could set the cheer up and I could do these long sentences, screaming and yelling at what cheer I wanted them to do. Nowadays, I yell at the top of my lungs and it's loud for like three Mm -hmm. words in a row (laughs) that I'm running out of air. But since everybody knows what I want, I'm 73 right now. I would say I could go to 90.
1: God bless. (laughs) And I
0: have. As I said, I have more fun than anybody at the game. I love Mm -hmm. what I do. And the fans love it. And I'm successful because I act like a fan. And that's the way I started off. I never thought about what I do. All I do is react to the game like I want to react because I react like a fan wants to react. And that's why some games, you know, if we're, if we're behind by 45 points, it's embarrassing for the team, the home team, to try to get cheers going for them. And it's also embarrassing to the home team if you're ahead by 45 points, and I don't cheer much. If we get ahead by 45, I cheer the appropriate amount, the exact time it's needed, and that's why I've been successful and that's and i've never been off color i'm always say funny things and the main success is my drum my second main success is i'm funny and i just have a great sense of humor i like laughing i like having fun and it just translates into fans having fun
1: and a life lesson that is that's a, an amazing uh uh f- a focus and an uh, and a, an incredible uh a- a attitude towards life um so uh like I said earlier, I can't thank you enough. Uh, and for those uh, who still haven't gotten the message, right? Crazy George has been our guest on the book. You must read. It's it's a hoot. Uh, and he's only touched on some of the stories and some of the zaniness uh, in his career. It's called Crazy George. Still crazy with a K after all these cheers. Uh, you can find it on crazygeorge.com. Uh, you can obviously find that where good books are sold. You'll find it on our website, blah, blah, blah. Um, George, thank you so much. This has been a tremendous Thrill for me and uh, a whole heck of a lot of fun. Uh, and uh, I look forward to hopefully staying in touch and, and, God forbid, maybe actually seeing you in person, maybe at a Quakes game if I get myself out there for my day job uh, and the and the Planets line up schedule-wise. I'd love to see you uh, in oh, action. Oh,
0: Tim, I would love that. I'd love to have you come out and say hi to me and watch me work. And we uh, will sit there and we'll talk about soccer and the old times and, and some of the old teams I did, like the and, Camden B. Rowdies, the Tulsa Roughnecks. And, Vancouver, you name it. I've been to a lot of soccer teams and uh, it would be fun to visit
1: with you. I look forward to that. Thank you, George, very much. And uh, we'll talk again soon.
0: Bye-bye, Kim.
1: <laughs> Take care, George. Bye-bye. Hot diggity dog. Man, that was fun. That was a great conversation, man. I I, I learned something in, in every one of these chats Uh, And I learned a bunch of things uh, today with George and uh, a fascinating story. There is is much more to his his life's journey uh, in his book. And we referenced it a couple of times. But again, uh, if you weren't paying attention and by golly, you should have been. Crazy George, still crazy after all these cheers is the name of the book, co-written with his wife. That's available at crazygeorge.com. You can find it wherever fine books are sold. You can even go to our website, goodseatsstillavailable.com. we got a link to it there as well. Whatever means you find this book, please get it. It's, it's a hell of a lot of fun and um, uh, some great stories. And uh, it's pretty inspiring, too. I mean, the man's been at it for 40-plus years and is still going strong. If you uh, want to book him for one of your events, uh, he doesn't do just uh, sporting events uh, only, but, uh, you know, uh, conferences and corporate gigs and that kind of stuff. You can find out all about his uh, his stuff and his wares there at crazygeorge.com. Um, highly encouraged. But get the book. It, it, it's so fun. And um, um, this is just scratching the surface in our conversation. So thank you, George Henderson, a.k.a. Crazy George, for a great conversation. And thank you, too, uh, all there out in listener land uh, for joining us for uh, yet another fun episode of the podcast. And we've got tons more coming. Uh, and we can't wait to uh, share it with you. So we'll see you online those uh, tweets and emails coming and um, take care until next episode. We'll see you soon.